Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. You're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 what's cracking? And welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. I'm your host, Darren McDuffie, and thank you for listening tonight. Tonight, we got a super show, awesome show. Um, Ray Audet is here to talk about his book, Neanderthal, and we'll be talking uh, specifically about caveman nutrition. So it's a show that I know a lot of people out there follow the paleo diet, but I consider Ray the godfather of paleo, um, and he's going to share uh, some tips with you about your diet, and there's some amazing stuff that we'll learn on this show. But before we get into the show, I hope um, everyone had a great Labor Day. I know I had a good, relaxing day, Labor Day, which I needed to do took some time to just uh, lay out on the beach and uh, relax and enjoy some things and hear the waves crashing and just a lot of good relaxation. So that was a good time. Uh, next week, on next week's show, we're going to do a, um, a rebroadcast. There was a show that I did that I think everyone needs to listen to. I did it with a woman uh, out of England named uh, Juliet Scarf, and it's about the toxins in cosmetics, and um, I think everyone needs to listen that, to that. And that show hasn't gotten a lot of listens to it, so I'm going to replay it. And I think the first time I made a mistake with that show, which I thought it was going to air at the time um, the show normally plays, but it was an on-demand episode, so you actually had to go on Blog Talk Radio and press play in order to hear the show. But I'm going to do it as a um, live show next week so you can hear that show and there's a lot of good information on there about changing your cosmetic products and that's not only for women and that's for men too there's a lot of men that are using cologne and using a lot of different things and um, we are an estrogen dominant society so we need to get away from that and Juliet Scarf is going to explain to you why um, your cosmetics and different personal care products are hazardous to your health so look out for that next week and um, tonight, let's get into the show with Ray Audet um, about Neanderthal. I can't wait for this show. I heard Ray speak about two years ago, and it brought a lot of aha moments for me, and I'm so glad to have him on the show tonight. So without further ado, let's bring Ray on. Pleasure. Ray Audet, Ray welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you doing tonight, man? It's a pleasure to be here, Darren. Cool, cool. Let's get into Neanderthal. I read the book, uh, really easy book to read. I read through it probably in about two two days or so, and that's because I didn't. I took a break, but I probably could have read it in, in one day. And I know you wrote it pretty fast, as we were talking about uh, off the air. But I just want to ask you, what prompted you to actually write the book, and can you kind of tell us about 
some of the health issues that, that you were having before you, you decided to write it. Sure, Darren. Um, about when I was uh, 33 years old, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And uh, at that point, I had already been suffering from rheumatoid arthritis for about a dozen years and uh, was really tired of being sick and tired all the time. So um, I decided that this newly diagnosed diabetes came from my grandfather, who was half Native American. So I tried to figure out what was different about the Native American diet where my ancestors came from versus what I was buying at the local supermarket. So I decided that their diet was more natural than ours. And, of course, having been a philosophy major in college, my first task was to define my terms. So for me, nature is the absence of technology. Absent technology, I figured I was naked with a sharp stick. So under those circumstances, what could I eat? And those were the only things I put in my shopping cart or on my plate. Uh, I was quite astounded at what happened to me at that point. Uh, within a short time, my blood sugars went normal, and my arthritis symptoms went away within a week or two and never came back, and unless I cheated on the diet, of course. So that started a process where, for the next 10 years or so, uh, people would notice me eating funny. Of course, naked with a sharp stick, grains, beans, potatoes, milk, and sugar are not edible to any species of primate, so I never ate those. And, of course, at restaurants, people would notice this and make snide comments about me the way I ate. So uh, I would go to the local medical library and look up things in medical journals and Xerox off a copy and then come back at these people and throw it in their face. And then when I was finished proving my point, I would take that medical uh, journal and article and put it in a basket I kept in my closet. So after 10 years of doing this and arguing with people about paleolithic nutrition, I had a box full of notes, and my wife told me she was going to have a baby. Mm-hmm. So uh, I said, well, in that case, I'm going to quit my job and write my book. Now, Darren, if there's one thing I learned from this experience is never say that to a pregnant woman. (laughs) But um, my friend, I had a friend, uh, Troy Gilchrist, whose band had quit him a couple of years earlier. They're now called the Dixie Chicks. And he had just gotten a degree in philosophy from UNT, so he was going nowhere fast. But he came over every day for a couple of hours, and we wrote Neanderthal in about 100 hours of labor. He would come by, and we'd work for an hour or two, and then we'd get my hawk and go out hunting for rabbits. After 60 days, we had a book. Wow. Yeah, so you you ended up publishing Neanderthal, and this book is 20 years. You said it was 20 years old, I recall? Yeah, we self-published it in the early part of 1995, and then in three editions, self-published editions, we sold a little under 10,000 copies out of my spare bedroom. And that came up to about 1999, actually about four years. And then St. Martin's Press came along and gave me a bushel basket full of money and came out with a hardcover and then a mass market paperback edition as well. So it's been in four editions so far. The 
for the St. Martin's edition and the Kindle editions are the latest. Um, they're about twice the size of the original first edition. When I wrote Neanderthal, I, having done all this research on Paleolithic nutrition, I had a list of names. I sort of appointed my own peer review panel, if you were. So I, I immediately sent out first edition copies of Neanderthal to all the people on my list. And they, in turn, began to send back stuff to me, which I incorporated into future editions. So these included people like Lauren Cordain and S. Boyd Eaton, uh, you know, and uh, Mike Eads and people like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lauren Cordain is considered like, other than you, would probably be considered the foremost authority on um, on pe- on the paleo diet right now. Right, he has about thirty or forty thousand articles in his library up there at uh, Colorado State University. Um, he's really, uh, when I was writing the the further editions of Neanderthal, he was really a great. Uh, research uh, help, a research uh, a resource. Uh, you know, if I had a question about something, I could call Lauren. He'd have one of his graduate students Xerox off something for me and send it to me. He had, he had sent me, he sent me a whole book this way. Mm-hmm. Now, let's get into, let's talk, talk about, and I think it's important to kind of create a foundation here. And you, one of the things you mentioned in your book, and then we'll kind of get a little bit further into diet, as you mentioned about the thermodynamic and the chaotic view of the body. Can you kind of explain that and how that kind of fits into um, the diet and it fits into the body um, as a whole and why we need to look at it in a chaotic view versus a, a thermodynamic view? For sure. One of the problems that we have with weight control is that people do think that it's a simple thermodynamic equation that is you know, you, if you limit calories, you will lose weight. And it turns out that's not quite the case. In studies that have been done, in long-term studies on calorie reduction diets, it's been found that after two years, the average person who attempts a calorie reduction diet gains 15% of body mass. And that's surprising to a lot of people, but actually it actually follows the science pretty accurately. It turns out that Regardless of the amounts of, of variables, you know, what we're looking at here is, you know, you're eating a certain amount of variables in your diet. And chaos theory says as long as the variables remain the same, the pattern will, re- will remain the same. This is what's called fractal geometry. Now, so that means with primates, as long as you re- keep the variables the same, that is foods that are edible to primates, you'll always fall within a normal human range of weight. That's under 10% for males and under 15% for females. So it doesn't matter how many calories you eat. It doesn't matter how little or much you exercise. As long as you keep yourself to what's edible to primates in nature, you will always be where you want to be as far as your weight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the book also that um, primates were designed to eat meat can you with all of the the things that are going on with the vegans versus the meat eaters i call myself a vegan because i love meat but um you you have um the vegan saying that think of it this way think of it this way darren every film or video you've ever seen of a monkey or an ape they were eating meat in the form of insects Mm -hmm. they call that grooming and it turns out that primates 
usually primate species spend more time in grooming than they do gathering fruit. And this is not surprising when you consider that primates evolved out of insectivores, and the earliest forms of primates, tarsiers, eat no vegetable material at all. Now, of course, within the 80-some-odd the species of primates that we recognize, there are a wide variety of eating patterns. But regardless of that, none of them are capable of eating grains, beans, potatoes, milk, or sugar without some form of technological intervention. And if you further look at primates, you can tell how much meat an individual species of primate eats by the shape of their hands. The monkeys and the apes that have the most human-like hands are the ones that eat the most meat. Apparently, this opposable thumb thing that we have is not really the ideal for swinging through the trees, but it is the ideal for holding on to dinner that's trying to get away from you. Now, we, you took that a step further in the book, and you talked about how we are omnivores, how we were, obviously we're designed to eat meat, and we're designed to eat some other things. Can you talk about that? Oh, sure. We are designed to eat the things that are edible to primates, but moreover, we are also evolved to eat red meat. In my book, I have a chapter where I describe all of the unique characteristics of an hominid a human, what separates us from the other apes. And it turns out that all of these are red meat adaptations. Everything from the shape of our brains to our bipedalism to the shape of our guts. If you look at, uh, for instance, in nature, the closest thing to the upper gut to lower gut, upper digestive tract to lower digestive tract ratio in nature to humans is not another primate. So in other words, your small intestines to large intestines, if you compare the lengths of each, the closest thing to that in nature to our intestinal ratio is that of a wolf or a dog. Mm -hmm. And that reflects on what we're designed to eat. In fact, in nature, wolves and humans eat exactly the same thing. That's why they domesticated us. Hmm. That's an interesting uh, theory there. Um, with wolves, you had that there was some distinct, uh, we were just like them with respect to our digestive system. Um, Mm -hmm. and that kind of intrigued me as far as, you know, let's talk about the digestive system, what it does, um, and why we're so much like, uh, wolves when it comes to that. Well, what it comes down to is we have a very short large intestine. Now, the large intestine is where primarily it's full of bacteria, and it, the, the food stays there for a while while the bacteria uh, literally digests it for us, and then we, in turn, absorb nutrients from the bacteria. And in humans, that's the shortest uh, digestive, tr- the, the shortest large intestine relative to small intestine of any primate species. And it's quite a big difference than even the chimpanzees or the, or the bonobos that are most closely related to us. Now, you mentioned also with uh, digestive issues, now that we're talking about the digestive system, digestive issues, and in your book you said the di- digestive issues actually started coming about in the 1800s, and now 
we're, here we are, we're in 2000, uh, 2014, and there are more and more people. Actually, I would say 99.9% of the population has digestive issues. What would you correlate with that? Well, it's like any other sort. I consider those things to be autoimmune disorders. Somehow your body is responding that's to something that in nature would not be there, and that response is harming you. So autoimmune disorders kill 95% of people in Western society, and they are virtually unknown in nature. Mm-hmm. And what you had, autoimmune diseases, you had rheumatoid arthritis, and diabetes is also considered an autoimmune disease. Um, can you kind of explain autoimmunity? Because I know a lot of people sometimes well, they, they feel worse. Well, an autoimmune disorder is where there's no pathogen involved. There's no virus or bacteria that gives you this disorder. So most of the things like heart disease, diabetes, um, cancers, all of these are now considered to be autoimmune disorders, and they all have uh, aspects of autoimmune responses associated with them. But one of the principal ones, of course, being inflammation. So what you can tell, uh, and I'm, I know you're into testing people for their foods, you can tell when they respond with inflammation, now you know that that person is sensitive to that substance. Well, it's you know my contention that these fruit of the tree of knowledge, these technology-dependent foods, are something that our immune system has not evolved to handle. I'm I'm fond of saying that I I only can, you know, to me, paleo is just when you confine yourself to primate foods. My poor little monkey immune system can't handle anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that pretty much sums up where, you know, where it comes from. You know, you're looking at, well, since we began eating these technology-dependent foods about 300 generations ago, some people claim it was a little longer than that, but regardless, 300 generations represents about 25 years' worth of white mice. And you really can't breed a mouse in 25 years that can tolerate as a staple something that no other rodent can eat. Let's talk about some of the studies, because I thought some of the studies in the book were really interesting. And um, it's always, and you begin uh, the program by just talking about calorie restriction and how it doesn't work. But in some of those studies, they were saying that the more people ate, and uh, I kind of, I interviewed uh, Dr. Shauna Young, and she was talking about the fact that when she started to eat in the way that you described, she was eating more, but she was actually weighing less. So talk about the fact of people eating more and going against that whole thing that you got to restrict calories, got to restrict calories, whereas you're eating more, but you're actually losing weight. Right, and they've done, uh, Jenny Brandt has done studies on this in Australia, studying the calorie intake and exercise levels of aboriginals, both unemployed aboriginals living in the city and aboriginals living off the land in their natural state. And she found that the aboriginals that lived out in the bush ate far more calories and exercised far less than their relatives living in the city. And, of course, the, 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 the aborigines in the bush did not have weight problems as the ones that lived in the city did. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that there's no overweight animals in nature. <laughs> and I find that to be, be quite funny, but it's not funny from the standpoint of evolution and these animals being able to get away from predators, whereas you find 
you find human beings that are always constantly overweight. And you said that obesity is a result of inflammation. Can you kind of go into that and, and talk about that a little bit more? Well, sure. When your body is inflamed, it swells up. So, you know, now that's, that's an oversimplification. Really, most obesity comes from what's called a hyperinsulemia, where in response to these high uh, glycemic foods, your body is producing insulin in exorbitant amounts, a lot more insulin than your body is really capable of handling. And after a while, that insulin is no longer efficiently used to convert uh, carbohydrates into sugars, into glucose. Now it's just, and glucose into energy, rather. It, and now it's just a big problem. Insulin is the, the hormone that controls fat cells. If there's insulin present, uh, the fat cells absorb glucose to produce fat. If there's no insulin presence, if you're in a state of ketosis, the opposite occurs. Now the fat cells, the valve turns the other way, and you release uh, fat into the body in the form of ketones. Mm -hmm. this, and the body does, you know, most cells can, can equally um, prosper on either glucose or ketones. Uh, it's a very important uh, factor in, in, the, in the way that the body metabolizes food is, you like, for instance, in the morning, you wake up, you have morning breath. Okay, when you have morning breath, that indicates you're in ketosis. So as you sleep through the night and you don't snack in the middle of the night, your blood sugar levels fall until you start burning fat. And the fat picks it up so that when you wake up in the morning, you have the energy to get out of bed. And you talked about, this is the, I guess, Jimmy Moore just came out with a book called The Ketogenic Diet, and this is the basis for the ketogenic diet. But way before Jimmy Moore actually wrote Keto Clarity, you, had, you mentioned one of the people in the book, uh, I think it's Bill Stephenson, where he actually came along this, this diet living with Eskimos. Yeah, with Bill Hartsmer Stephenson was, was a famous uh, Icelandic-American uh, explorer. He was the last European-American to discover new... He was the last European uh, to discover new land in the Americas back in the 1920s. But he was most famous because in 1906 he went to live with the Eskimos, the Inuit, and never ate vegetables again. So he, he, they actually did a bunch of studies on him to see what would happen from an all-meat diet. And everything uh, turned out to be very, very positive for him and the other people that they tested for a year. Now, the ketogenic diet, I know uh, uh, Jimmy's got a couple of things coming out on that, but the ketogenic diet has garnered a lot of, a lot of uh, interest of late because of its applications in cancer and also in treating toxoplasmosis. But uh, the cancer part is really fascinating. It's getting very popular for cancer patients because, well, a fellow named Otto Warburg won the Nobel Prize in 1931 for discovering that cancer cells, unlike every other cell in your body, cancer cells can only live on glucose. They can't live on ketones. So if you go into a ketogenic state, the cancer cells simply die. And Warburg discovered this, like I said, in 1931. They gave him the Nobel Prize for it. But they they, based on this discovery, they started uh, clinical trials in about 2011 or 2012. 
and it seems to have really miraculous results. It works exactly as predicted. Yeah, yeah, it's getting a lot of a lot of attention. I actually I spoke with someone else about that the whole ketogenic diet. Um, and I've used it being... personally. I've used it personally in treating autistic children. Um, when I had first self-published a book, I got an email from a lady in California talking about her vegetatively autistic son mm-hmm. and whether a paleo diet would help him. And I really didn't know, so I sent her a book and a bag of pemmican. And uh, two weeks later, she calls me on the phone to tell me her kid went normal. And um, as long as he stayed in ketosis, he stayed normal. And this intrigued me a little bit, and I realized that Johns Hopkins University Hospital had been using a ketogenic diet since 1911 to treat juvenile epilepsy. And some people were actually talking about autism being a form of uh, seizure disorder, which intrigued me to no end. And then, uh, a couple of years ago, they published the 55th major study since the 1970s about toxoplasmosis. There's this parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. And it turns out, based on all of these studies, that Toxoplasma gondii is the cause of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, juvenile epilepsy, and autism. And this is a parasite? Yes, it's a cat parasite. Oh, okay. So, like cancer cells, the larva of Toxoplasma gondii cannot live on ketones. If you go into ketosis, the larvae go into a cystic state an inactive state. This is what, why they've been treating juvenile epilepsy at Johns Hopkins using ketosis since 1911. Turns out it works exactly the same with autistic children. And in further researching this, I found they've been treating schizophrenics and bipolar disorder people with a ketogenic diet since at least the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Let's let's rewind back on a ketogenic diet. It's high what protein, uh, high fat. fat, high fat. It's mostly and mostly what you have to look at is like eighty percent fat in your diet by okay. calories. And low carb, correct? Right, essentially zero carb. Okay. okay. And your the whole thing with the paleo is you. I don't. I can't remember if you said. You can do carbs, but you might want to adjust your carbs because everyone is, is different. Or would you uh, say, you know, just strictly low carb? Well, it's a, a question of what, what you're trying to accomplish. You, you know, fruits, there are some very relatively high-carb fruits, but even those are really low-carb unless you start eating dried versions or juice them. So if you're going to eat fresh fruit, it's not going to hurt you at all in, in terms of your goals, although... You know, for most of every year in nature, there is no fresh fruit. There was an interesting article about this. It's in the bibliography on my website about this woman in uh, in Borneo who, uh, I can't, Miss Knott is her name, Dr. Knott, I should say. But Dr. Knott was the like the Jane Goodall, if you can imagine, of orangutans. So she's following the orangs through the jungle for years on end, and taking notes about them and studying them, and she's very famous for this already. But one day, the orangutans decided it would be very funny 
for them to pee on her <laughs> since they were up in the trees and she was on the ground. Well, being the good scientist that she was, when God handed her lemons, lemonade, she decided to make science out of it. So she took an upside-down umbrella and started collecting the urine. And, in the, and then she would test it. And in the process, she found out that for more than half of every year, all of the orangutans were in ketosis. Mm-hmm. Turns out that fruit is seasonal, even in the rainforest. So for half the year, there was no car- high-carbohydrate fruit to be had. All there was was high-fat nuts, high-fat insect slugs, and, and grubs of different sorts, and low-carbohydrate vegetable material. So essentially, for half of every year, the apes do Atkins. Hmm. Do you think that's what part of the problem with human beings, the fact that we can get anything in any year? I Like just last weekend, I was at the beach, I was eating watermelon, and now you can get that type of fruit or any other type of fruit all throughout the year because it's shipped constantly through, you know, from other places. Right. Thanks to jet airplanes, the season never ends on any fruit. They can fly it from the southern hemisphere. So we get fruit from South America in the wintertime. But unfortunately, that's not the way our bodies are set up. Our bodies are set up to be seasonal. You know, you, you make fat when there's carbohydrates available. When you go into a low-carbohydrate diet, you're designed to burn fat. You're, you're, you're designed to, you know, become fat when the, when the fruit is out and then burn that fat in the winter or the dry season in the jungle when there is no fruit. This is why the apes don't fall out of the trees. Yeah. Now, let's get into talking about specific types of the foods, because you mentioned we've already kind of talked a little bit about grains, the, 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 uh, the big deal with grains. You also mentioned milk. Um, there was one thing in there that caught my eye, and I highlighted it as I was reading because I I had I was diagnosed with arthritis in both of my knees after playing basketball for a number of years, mm-hmm. and I remember I used to eat corn, but specifically when I got gluten out of my diet, that was when I was able to the arthritis just left. But you mentioned in the book where corn, when it was introduced from Mexico, that's when we had a big rise in arthritis symptoms. Can you talk about that? Exactly. Well, when you look at the history of arthritis and the history of corn, one followed the other everywhere in the world. Both started in the Valley of Mexico and then spread to North and South America. And then with Columbus, they came to Northern Africa and Southern Europe. It took them almost 200 years to go to Northern Europe. And Rheumatoid arthritis followed everywhere they went. Now, you know, the type of rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disorder. It's not caused by pounding your knees on a basketball court, but it's, it's very similar in the way that it feels. But in my particular case, I found that um, if I eat anything that contains cornstarch or any corn of any kind, that I'll feel it in my joints the next day. It's that rapid a... Uh, um, response to the to the proteins that are found in corn Mm -hmm. and of course they've done studies they did one study in india where they took people with rheumatoid arthritis and took them off of all grains and all lentils and the rheumatoid went away 
went into total remission in about 90% of the people they did this with. What about um, milk? Let's talk about milk for a little bit as far as uh, a lot of people are still, you know, they still drink milk and they're still very fond of milk. But on your particular diet, Neanderthal diet, you strictly forbid milk. Why is that? Well, there are reasons to do that. Um, for instance, let's take, a, for instance, juvenile diabetes, um, type 1 diabetes. Um, type 1 diabetics invariably have an immune system response to a particular type of milk protein called bovine insulin. Bovine insulin is very close to human insulin, except that it's designed for cows but it will still connect to the same receptors in humans. But when the immune system in 1 in 200 children will see bovine insulin as a possible threat, it's a little bit different, so the body doesn't recognize it as being natural and produces an immune system to it. That immune system in turn ends up causing white blood cells to destroy cells in the pancreas that are supposed to be producing insulin for you. Now you're a type 1 diabetic. Also, dairy consumption has been associated in epidemiological studies with both breast cancer and prostate cancer. And that's probably related to bovine estrogens, cow estrogen. It's not the same as human estrogen. It's what they call a xenoform. It's very close to human estrogen, but not. And, you know, you know the effect of, well, the hormonal effects of lactation resulting in breast tissue development. Is it any wonder that these same hormones, but in bovine form, in non-human form, over a lifetime might cause uncontrollable breast tissue development, i.e. breast cancer? Mm-hmm. Now, the, the Harvard Nurses Study, which is the largest nutrition study ever done, also took a subset of the nurses and checked out their risk for, well, they they checked out their bone density. And over the years, they found that the women with the highest percentage of bone density, which usually the dairy industry likes to attribute to milk consumption, the ones with the highest bone density had a four and a half times risk of breast cancer. It's still one of the number one risks known for the condition. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you look at countries where traditionally they don't drink milk, places like large parts of China, the incidence of breast cancer and prostate cancer is practically nil. Yeah, yeah. It's like we promote uh, milk for osteoporosis and all of this stuff, and we still have osteoporosis. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, and it's yeah. really something that in nature there's no... There's no other species that regularly drinks the milk of another species. You know, um, it just doesn't happen. You don't see baboons hanging off the back ends of wildebeest sucking on a teat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I see some people on the switchboard. If you have a question, we're halfway through the show. If you have a question, call. Uh, just hit one on your switchboard, and I'll see you there, and I'll bring you on the air if you have a question. So, um Ray, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned pemmican, and um, I don't think that a lot, I know what pemmican is, but I don't think that a lot of people know um, what pemmican is. Can you kind of talk about uh, what it is and 
how it's probably one of the most nutritious things you can you could probably eat. Well, sure. Pemmican is uh, dried red meat that's been dehydrated. It's, so it's it's not cooked at any point. You you want to dehydrate it at a very relatively uh, low temperature. I usually dehydrate about 115 degrees. And um, after it's dry, you grind it up into well, it varies, but it can all the way all the way to powder or not quite so powdery, and then you soak it in tallow. Tallow is rendered fat. Tallow is has is fat with no water in it, and it's sort of like beef jerky. But if you've ever made beef jerky, you know that if you don't cure it with sugar or something else, it's going to absorb moisture from the air, and then it's going to grow mold. But pemmican doesn't do that because the tallow seals it. Nothing grows in tallow. No bacteria can grow in tallow. So it'll keep for 100 years without refrigeration. And pemmican has been tested by the U.S. Army as a survival food back in the 1930s. Uh, Wilhardsmer Stephenson ran a bunch of experiments with it. It turns out that pemmican is just about the only food that a human can live on exclusively without vitamin or mineral deficiencies. It's also a very highly concentrated food. A small handful of pemmican will keep you going uh, for 12 hours a day paddling your canoe from Quebec to British Columbia and back, as my my ancestors did every year for nine months. Mm. So it's kind of like the, the perfect, the ideal perfect snack, so to Oh, yeah. I, I, I still make pemmican to this day. In fact, my son, uh, Greyhawk, from age one to age three, ate almost nothing but pemmican. And, of course, he's uh, 19 now, and I've never seen anyone quite as buff as he is, and which is amazing because I've never seen him work out. <laughs> what, what's your, what do you typically eat? So if you, you know, for breakfast or something like that, I know that you probably, like me, you eat a lot of meat, but what's a typical... Yeah, I start, I, I start a day with a pound of bacon and a cup or two of tea, Mm-hmm. And then for lunch, I'll go to, uh, uh, well, I'll go to In-N-Out, have a, a burger protein style. Mm-hmm. So that's a couple of hamburger patties and some lettuce and tomatoes. And then uh, I may have a snack in the middle of the day, some nut mix or a piece of fruit. And then a typical dinner for me is uh, about a pound of steak, and um, I pan fry it and I saute some onions and the bacon grease from the morning's bacon, put that on top of it. And then late in the evening I'll have, uh, oh, you know, some more nut mix or maybe if it's, if it's late night and I'm up posting stuff on Facebook or something, I'll have a big helping of Braunschweiger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you, are you familiar with that? No, no, what is that? It's <laughs> it's, a, it's a sausage made of... Um, pork liver and bacon mm, okay okay so you're never actually going you never actually or you're always satiated you're never actually hungry yeah i don't get well i i do get hungry once in a while but you know like a small pinch of pemmican will take away your hunger immediately uh one thing nice about having pemmican in, uh, in that bowl on top of the refrigerator is if you get hungry one pinch will take care of it yeah with um meat a lot of people are so afraid of meat but um meat seems to make the basis of you know quote unquote the paleo diet 
and it also seems to provide that uh, satiety. But uh, there are a lot of people who are on plant-based diets versus, you know, on a a meat-based diet, and I'm not sure how that, you know, how that affects them. Um, do are they always hungry? Um, you know, I find that if I eat a lot of meat, I'm not hungry, especially if I eat meats with a lot of fat in them, like a lamb or something like that. But have you known anyone who's been on a plant-based diet and kind of switched over to this diet or someone who's been more vegetarian and found out that they were more, they just were more satisfied with the 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 Well, my, the co, my, co, my co-author, Troy Gilchrist, was vegetarian for many years, as was his sister. and They both became paleo at one point. Well, before he wrote the book, Several, a couple of years before he wrote the book, they became paleo. And, of course, I've had a, a lot of experience with readers who, you know, tout how much better they feel eating a natural diet rather than eating a, you know, a vegetarian diet is really not doable in nature. You know, um, there's, uh, to be a vegetarian requires that you eat technology-dependent foods. It's really no way around it. Without grains, beans, potatoes, milk, and sugar, it's nearly impossible to be a vegetarian. Although there are some that try to eat what they call a, a raw vegan diet, but without jet airplanes, that isn't even possible. Yeah. Um, why do you think we have so much stigma with meat now? People are so afraid of meat. Well, there's a lot of... Um, you know, vegetarians are the most profitable of eaters. And the the marketing, you know, the profit generates a lot of marketing effort. Meat tends to be a lot less profitable than vegetable crops. But unfortunately for the vegetarians of this world, two-thirds of the world's arable land, that is two-thirds of the world's farmland, is not capable of raising vegetables. It's what they call permanent pasture. So, you know, a basic misunderstanding of the economics of farming leads to a lot of people making assumptions that strictly aren't true. But, of course, you know, the vegetarians tend to be very good propagandists. I mean, look at it this way. Do you know who the most famous vegetarians of the 20th century were? No, I don't. Who are they? Uh, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Pol Pot, and Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi alone killed more than 10 million people in one year. But, you know, they 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 promote this stuff. Of course, you know, every morning the pigs thank Allah that after thousands of years of persecution, they still outnumber those that would call them unclean. So there's a lot to be said for bacon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are really, really afraid of, um, you know, of eating meat. Um, you mentioned beans, and we didn't get to talk on that. I actually didn't know a, the peanut was an actual bean, but there are some things, and I had steered clear of uh, peanut butter a couple of years ago. And um, But there's some – talk about beans and peanuts and why someone adopting the Neanderthal diet would want to stay away from those. Well, beans have to be – are not edible when raw. That's why we call coffee berries beans. I mean, they're not really beans, but you really can't eat them raw. Um, 
For instance, if you were to eat raw soybeans, it would make you very, very ill. By definitions, beans contain neurotoxins, that is, uh, brain poisons, as well as what they call metabolic disruptors, things like phytoestrogens that prevent the anything that would eat them from reproducing or to thrive. So the reason that um, this is why you know the, the presence of these neurotoxins have led to an association between uh, legume consumption and both Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in epidemiological studies. And of course, you know, when you look at, uh, you mentioned peanuts, peanuts are one of the major sources of aflatoxin contamination. Aflatoxin is um, a, well, it comes from a, a rust, a fungus that grows on, on peanut shells. You've seen that black stuff on the peanut shells? Mm-hmm. That's aspirilla rust. It produces aflatoxin. Now, the federal government allows 15 parts per billion of aflatoxin for human consumption, but they have found much higher levels than that out there. Um, it's part of the reason why um, uh, uh, pancreatic liver and esophageal cancers, which are most closely associated with aflatoxin contamination, are right now the fastest-growing cancers in the U.S., in terms of uh, cancer rates. Yeah, I think um, we have a question. Someone uh, just let me just bring them on. Sure. Here. Hey, caller from the nine five four. You're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, this is Terry from Pembroke Pines, Florida. Hey, Terry, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I am doing fabulous. What's your question for Ray? Awesome. I'm really enjoying this conversation, but what the question that I have is the, uh, about the nitrates in the meat products now, and can you address um, what the nitrates will be doing to the body? Oh, sure, sure. Nitrates are known carcinogens, um, although in the levels you found that you find in, say, bacon, they're still a much safer bet than eating something like uh, a peanut butter sandwich. Okay. So uh, if there's an article in... If you go to Neanderthin.com, there's a bibliography, and you'll see an article there by a fellow named Bruce Ames out of UC Berkeley. Ames is the leading authority on cancer causation in the world. He came up with what's called the Ames Scale. The Ames Scale is where you compare, uh, well, a one in an Ames Scale means that one out of a million exposures will result in cancer. So the nitrates in a serving of bacon have an Ames number, of 0.24. Okay. Oh, okay. An order of French fries has an Ames number of 1,100. Ooh. Yeah. Exactly. So in the, scheme a, uh, of things, in, the, in the scheme of things, I would worry more about the acrylamides, which is the principal carcinogen found, among other things, in potatoes, than the nitrates found in bacon. Good to know. Yeah. Terry, there's also an uh, if you want to look up Chris Cresser, he did a really good report on that as well about the nitrates and the levels of what okay. rate. And you can look up Chris Cresser and and just Google that, and you'll probably be able to find it. Um, did you have a follow-up question, Terry? Nope, that's it. All right, Thanks, thank you Terry. for calling in. Thanks. Yeah, I've always wondered about that myself, Ray, about the ni- uh, nitrates. And uh, I came across uh, Chris's article uh, on uh, 
I Googled it one day and, and read his article, and it kind of touched on what you were saying um, as well. Um, another and, you know, thing, this, is, this, is, this relates directly to, you know, in my book, I, I kind of recommend organic produce and whatnot. But when mm-hmm. it comes right down to it, you know, I say that, um, you know, there are bigger things to worry about than whether or not your produce is organic. In other words, if it if it results in you eating less, don't pay attention to those labels. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. sort of like grass-fed meat versus the regular meat, you know. It, it's like the difference is so small compared to the the difference between being paleo and not that I wouldn't worry too much about that. If it, if 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 that's what you can afford to eat, eat what you can afford to eat, and don't worry about the fancy schmancy organic stuff at the Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do the best you can do for now. That's what I I, I always tell right. people. Right, and like a, you know, like the difference between eating organic produce and eating just the worst chemically contaminated crap you can buy is you know tiny, tiny, minuscule compared to avoiding things like aflatoxin from peanuts or, 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 or corn products, or avoiding things like acrylamides. Acrylamides are what you get when you heat starch past 140 degrees. Uh, acrylamides are the number one carcinogen actually found inside of humans. Yeah, you mentioned specifically when you were talking to Terry about um uh, French fries, but you also talk about potatoes in your book too, and that was the last thing I wanted to touch on. You gave a, a good segue into that why potatoes aren't the most ideal food to be eating. Well, when you start right off, you know the, the typical potatoes that you buy in the market are the most chemically contaminated food you can buy in America. Now they're contaminated with uh, pesticides and herbicides and. Of course, organic, uh, I mean, uh, inorganic uh, fertilizers of various sorts. And then once they're in the warehouse, they're sprayed with fungicide. All of which are the, all of these, of course, are carcinogens, known carcinogens. But were you to go to the fancy store and buy the organic potatoes, they're actually more carcinogenic than the ones with all the chemicals. Hmm. Because it turns out that the fungus that results is 10 times more carcinogenic than the chemicals they put on to prevent the fungus. Yeah, you're going to make me give up my potato chips, man. <laughs> oh, you don't. Well, when you, when you think about it, think about it this way, uh, Darren. The, the crunchy part of complex carbohydrates is acrylamide. Okay, now back in they just you know, they've discovered that there was a relationship between uh, grain and cancer back in 1843. Uh, a man named in the University of Paris Medical School named Stanislaw Slantanshu discovered that the best way to predict epidemiological cancer rates was per capita grain consumption, 1843. And that's still true today, but they didn't discover why until 2001. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, they took blood samples from 3,500 people in Europe looking for carcinogens. And they found that 90% of the carcinogens found inside humans were acrylamide. Acrylamide happens anytime you heat starch past 140 degrees centigrade. It's the crunchy part of complex carbohydrates. So anything that's crunchy made from carbohydrate is very carcinogenic. Let's take an example, for instance, it would be dog food. You know, everywhere you go, you get this crunchy dog food. It's made from grain. They they bake it. It's crunchy, and the dog loves it. 
cleans their teeth, they claim. Well, it turns out in the United States, dogs have more than four times the cancer rates of humans. Mm-hmm. Ask your vet. Yeah, that's why we switched it. we switched our dog over to a raw food diet. Our dog doesn't eat any, <laughs> any grain. Ah, another one of my she... another one of my readers is Dr. Billinghurst in, in in Australia, the guy that invented the barf diet. He's uh, one of uh, one of my readers contacted him via email, and turns out he's been eating Neanderthal for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, last question for you: If you were faced with a situation where you had to lose let's say 40, 50 pounds to regain your health, which I know you've probably done this, what's first thing you would do? Get into ketosis and stay there. Mm-hmm. It's the most natural way to do it. And that's really going towards a high-fat diet, protein. Eat as much no fat problem. as you can. Remember, the thinnest people in the world live over in Africa. They're called Tutsis. Okay. Mm-hmm. You've heard of the Watutsi? Exactly. Uh, there's a, another study in my uh, bibliography about the Sambora tribe. The Sambora tribe eats no vegetable material at all. Um, their diet is 65% by calorie saturated fat. They are the thinnest people in the world. And they eat considerably more calories than the average American. And in Sambora t- culture, it's considered unmanly for a man to break a sweat for any reason. And you look at that and compare that to people that eat a traditional low-fat diet and exercise six hours a day. They live over in Japan. You know what they call them, don't you? Sumo wrestlers. Exactly. <laughs> so you want to eat like the Sambora, the thinnest people in the world, and not eat like the sumo. Yeah. That whole low-fat thing was the greatest trick ever played on Americans anywhere. <laughs> well... And, and if you want to see where that came from, you can go rent the movie The Road to Wellville, and you'll learn more about John Harvey Kellogg than you really wanted to know. Yeah, I actually did a blog post on that, the whole grain thing and how that came back, how that came about. And well, how The Road to Wellville, if you, have, if you haven't seen The Road to Wellville, it's hysterically funny. Uh, you can get it. I've seen it online before. The Road to Wellville, it stars Matthew Broderick and Anthony Hopkins. Fantastic, hilarious movie, and the funniest part about it is it's 100% historically accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy because I remember hearing about that, and I went and I did some research on the whole catalog thing, and then I wrote um, two blog posts. One is called, it's called Serial Killer Part 1 and 2, and they're on my blog about the whole low-fat thing and how cornflakes were invented and what they were invented for. It's, it's nuts, but... Um, Ray, thank you for being on Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio, man. I really enjoy this conversation. It's always oh, nice very good. to talk well, to I'm someone. Just, I'm grateful that people like you still want to hear from me after almost 20 years. And, that, you know, thanks to Kindle, I'm, I'm still getting a check every once in a while from this book that <laughs> I spent 100 hours slaving over. And, yeah, uh, Of course, I'm, yeah, very active on, I'm very active on Facebook and a couple of other uh, forums out there. And, you know, uh, tell, I, I always tell my readers, you know, if you have a question for me, don't hesitate to ask. Yeah, you're my fan on Facebook. If anyone else wants to connect with you, um, 
They can connect with you at Ray Audette, R-A-Y and A-U-D-E-T-T-E. You can connect mm-hmm. with Ray, and he always puts out a lot of good information. So go and connect with him. But uh, thank you, Ray, for being on Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. And um, go out and grab Ray's book. It's a really nice read, and it gives you a lot of good information to think about. And last I looked, you could get a hardcover for $1.45 on Amazon used. Oh, I didn't get the hardcover. I actually got Kindle. I love Kindle because I can highlight it. Oh, very good. It. Well, there's a, there's a bunch of used copies. People tend to pass them along. And so uh, every yeah. once in a while, the Goodwill somewhere has it on sale for $1.45 on Amazon. Yeah, I always get my books used on Amazon. It's a good thing. But again, Ray, thank you for being on, man. Thank you for uh, dedicating your time and, and getting the information out there. And uh, if you ever get paid on my the Godfather Paleo, I just want a little bit of credit for that. But you are the Very Godfather good. Paleo. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Ray. Good night. Good night. All right. Good show. A lot of info-rich information on there. And like I said, next week we'll have um, a rebroadcast of a show with Juliet Scarf. Juliet is actually from England, and she'll be talking about uh, cosmetic products. And I know there's a lot of women out there who are having issues with their hormones, and one of the big things about that is that most of the time it's your personal care products that are adding to your what I call your estrogen dominance factor. So that'll be a rebroadcast of the show. It's a really good show, and we go into a lot more than just talking about cosmetics. And uh, you can listen to that show. And then the week after that, we'll actually have Raw Feeding Miami. For those of you out there who have pets, we'll have Carla on. And Carla's going to be talking about Raw Feeding Miami and how she came up with the idea to start her own company um, and offer, start offering raw food to dogs. And she offers, also offers grass-fed stuff, which I get from her here in Miami. And she will also ship food as well to you if you're interested in getting uh, grass-fed um, meats as well. And it's also at a very good price. I usually get stuff from her all the time. So until next week, same fat time, same fat channel. Thank you for listening to the show tonight. And I will see you next week. Peace. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.